So we are in week two of our fall series called Faith in 4D. Faith in 4D. So this is that four dimensions of faith. And um, you may not know this, but we have a Tuesday group that gets together, most of these people up here and tech people, and we plan out these Sunday services. And we talk about the sermon series coming ahead. And so we knew the series was coming and there was a big fight about what is what are the four dimensions, right? What are the four dimensions? There's a lot of ways to look at this four dimension idea. One is from a cosmological perspective. So if you're a little bit of a science geek, you know you got the three dimensions of space. Uh, some might call it length with height. Uh, that's not exactly accurate because cosmologically that is not height. There's this, the X, Y, Z axis, the three dimensions of space. Moving along, something that is theoretically called space-time. And nobody has any idea really what that is, but we are moving along some kind of a time continuum. So those are the four dimensions cosmologically. And then the artists start piping up in our Tuesday meeting, and uh, artists, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, no, we think 4D is more like, you know, you've got this, the, four, the three dimensions of space, but then you add a dimension of experience or, you know, uh, emotion or senses, right? So you might go to a theater, and uh, there's some 4D theaters right now, the two-dimension on the screen, three-dimensional glasses, and then bubbles or scents or the seat moves. I mean, that freaks me out. I'm not going to one of those things, so don't even invite me. But uh, what is 4D? And then you look at the Bible, and uh, it doesn't talk about dimensions at all, because 2,000 years ago, there was no cosmology or artistic, you know, theories about uh, dimensions. So we just kind of made it up, and we're just kind of going for it. But uh, for the purpose of this series, we're talking about the four dimensions of faith, which are individual, relational, communal, and social. So regardless of how we're gonna fight about the definition of dimension, we know that God has called us to a deep and rich, multidimensional faith that involves all of these things. And so over the um, uh, uh, fall or summer, we talked about the individual faith a lot, about how we find God and experience God in various ways and how we find and experience God is different for each one of us. Um, uh, one of our resident artists brought this illustration to our attention that in the four dimensions of life, there is the linear dimension, which is our personal lives. And it's great and it's powerful, but it can be pretty thin if we just focus on ourselves. And so we look in scripture in the life and ministry of Jesus and we see that he calls us to have more of a multidimensional faith. So there's the 2D, kind of like a, you know, a flat sheet of paper and, and we're, we're broadening our life and then we're deepening our life with the three dimensions and so you have perspective now. And then the fourth dimension is what happens outside of us and outside of our community to really impact the world around us. So that's kind of a way to orient ourselves around this idea of a four-dimensional faith. And it begins with our individual walk, our individual walk. Uh, a lot of us can really point to a time where we had a personal experience with God. It could be through nature, through art, through church, um, in our own minds, right? There's just a personal relationship that happens and that sparks that first dimension of faith. And for me, it was when I was a, uh, about a teenager, early teenager. Uh, my family was pretty dysfunctional. I'll talk about that here in just a little bit. And so I found a home here at Rancho Church back when I was a wee little guy. And started coming on Tuesday nights. And over that relationship with the church, four men poured their lives into my life, just out of the goodness of their heart, just loving the community and loving you know, the, the, the young people around them. They decided, you know what, we're going to mentor some young folks. Uh, one of those people was Monty. And he's still around today mentoring young people. And uh, he must be 112 years old, but he's still doing the work of loving and caring for young people. Now, he was driven more by an emotional faith. And so he would talk about an intimate relationship with Jesus. And uh, it was very meaningful and powerful, and, and he still has an influence in my life to this very day. 
Then there was a math teacher of mine who led a Bible study over lunch, and he invited me and a couple of friends to come to a Bible study. And we thought, hey, you know, a teenager going to Bible study at lunch, that sounds great. Uh, but we went, and because um, we liked him, and then we discovered that this guy really does care about us, and he cares about our faith. Now, he was very cerebral, knowledge-driven, and so we learned about the Bible, and we studied the Bible. He would spend eight hours voluntarily preparing for a Bible study with three teenagers. Seriously. And then he would expect us to do homework. It's like, great, we have your math homework, now we have your Bible study homework. And we would just kind of thrash it together last minute, and, and he knew it, but he was very gracious. But it was about cerebral knowledge, and he really loved, um, you know, not just reading the Bible, but studying the Bible and studying doctrine and even philosophy, and so it was kind of interesting. That was Bill. And then there was my youth pastor, Brad, here at Rancho Church, and he was discipline-driven, really disciplined guy, put-together guy. And I was his intern over the summer, and I would show up at 9 o'clock, and from 9 o'clock to 9.20 every single morning, he'd be in his office doing his Bible reading and doing his prayer. He was doing his devotions every single morning from 9 to 9.20. And that was just his rhythm, discipline-driven. Now, as I was kind of growing up, I thought, well, you know, should I be like Monty and more emotional-driven and be like Bill and just study, study, study? Should I be like Brad and be all disciplined? And so I kind of thought early I need to be all these things, right? Here are these great guys that are pouring into my life, and I need to be like them. And then I realized some freedom over time that actually, no, I didn't need to be like them. But I did learn from Monty. So even though I, I don't say I have <laughs> this uh, intimate relationship with Jesus, I don't speak in those terms, I have a, a profound relationship with Jesus in part because of Monty's influence. And I learned from Bill. I love study, studying and noodling with doctrine, but unlike Bill, I don't consider the pursuit of doctrinal truth to be you know, the core definition of following Jesus. Now, I learned from Brad, and Bible reading and prayer are important, but unlike Brad, I don't have this daily routine. And so if you're taking notes, here's my spiritual disciplines. I read the Bible and pray whenever I want. And I'm totally good with that. And sometimes it's in the morning, sometimes at night, sometimes not at all. And I'm like good and free from all that. So we can learn from people's individual relationship with God, but then realize that your relationship with God is very individual to you. So take some ideas from people and, you know, use them if you want and practice them if you want, but then be able to say, hey, that's just not me and that's all good. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 15. He says, I'm the vine, right? So the life of God comes through Jesus, but then you are the branches, and every branch is unique. No two branches that have ever existed are exactly the same. So I don't have to be exactly like Monty, don't have to be exactly like Bill, don't have to be exactly like Brad. But there's parts of the influences growing up that I can use as I'd like in my own life and based on my own personal walk with God. So you're an individual, very unique branch. So your unique walk with God is yours alone and embrace that and enjoy it, right? That's the relational faith. Today we're gonna land on the I'm sorry, that's the individual faith. Today we're gonna to land on the relational faith, the relational dimension of faith. And this is us really needing each other. We need each other. Humans are social creatures designed by God to thrive only when surrounded by love and support. And I thought about that word only and intentionally I'm emphasizing that word only because I, I just believe this to be true. We cannot thrive on our own. We cannot thrive as independent beings. We can only thrive when surrounded by love and support. That's the way we're designed. Now, some people who are fiercely independent can still be successful. You can still look at their lives and go, well, they're achieving a lot, and they might be very much alone, and while they're achieving a lot, I can guarantee you they're not thriving. We can only thrive when surrounded by love and support. 
Human beings can build great institutions alone. Human beings can amass wealth and possessions alone. Human beings can invent things and produce great things alone. Human beings can create great art alone and human beings can solve great problems alone, but they're not thriving. They're not thriving. We can only thrive when surrounded by love and support. And we see that in the first page of the Bible. Open your Bible in Genesis and you will see right from the beginning, the Lord said it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And he's not talking about Adam and Eve as individual people. This whole poem is talking about really humankind. It's not good for humankind to be alone. And then what you see is that God kind of creates family, the idea of, uh, of marriage and life partners, just sharing life together in a covenantal relationship. And, and many families bear children and that whole wonderful um, interdependent life together as a family. And then God says, fill the earth. So it's not just about that nuclear family. It's about this whole global society of people who are interconnected with one another. God says, we need relationships everywhere to every corner of the earth. We need each other. We need relationships because we were not designed to be alone and we can only thrive with each other in relationship. Now, some of us might look at this reality of, of being relationally connected and deeply connected and for some it's, it's hard. Some of us, and this is myself included, tend to be a little bit more independent. And so I remember believing and feeling, well, I don't need a lot of people around me. I kind of got this, right? Some of you might feel the same way. Some of you and some of us are a little more socially uncomfortable. Some people struggle with social anxiety and being around people, even small groups of people can be a little uncomfortable or we can might maybe feel a little awkward uh, around people or insecure, right? And all that's completely fine and completely understandable, but that could prevent us from building some good relationships. Some of us have been hurt by others, maybe betrayed by others, maybe even abused by others. People who were supposed to love you actually ended up hurting you. And so you put up some walls, some relational walls. All these things are very understandable and be patient with yourself in this, right? Whether you're wired more independent or you have some life experience that creates some independence, be patient. But also patiently work through that. Patiently work through this, this, this independent streak towards the goal of opening yourself up and maybe being a little bit vulnerable and, and take a few risks to bring some people into your life and really live in a more interdependent way. So on one end of the spectrum, there's this idea of independence, right? That I can do this on my own and that's not very healthy. There's another side of the continuum that talks about uh, codependence, right? Codependent people are perhaps overly needy uh, in relationships. Codependence is an excessive reliance on others. Now, in my own household growing up, uh, my dad was an alcoholic, and so the rest of us sort of learned to live in a codependent relationship. Everybody had sort of a defined role in this dysfunctional house. And so as an example of codependency, it could be a wife and a mother whose identity it is to keep their family together in the face of the husband's addiction. And that is a, a dysfunction of people who might be married to or even children of people who struggle with addiction. There can be a codependency there. Or it could be a husband who cannot make decisions without getting his mother's approval. Do not nudge anybody right now. No nudging allowed here at Rancho. It's like a nudge-free zone. But you might have this, this grown man who's successful in business, but he's got to call mom just to get approval for this big decision. And the wife's like, oh, why do you, you know, anyway, that's codependency. Or it could be a 30-year-old um, child who not only is at home because of a financial need, but actually stops trying to get out of the house 
That's a codependent uh, on relationship with their parents. And so it's not just about, hey, needing to stay for a while because living as a young person in California is near impossible economically, but hey, I'm just giving up trying to even get out of the house. So there's some codependent relationships in all of us, over-dependence on, on others. What we're striving for, and I think this is the biblically healthy model of relationships, and we see that modeled by Jesus, as we'll see here in a minute, is we want interdependent relationships. Interdependent relationships. Interdependence is relying on each other through connectedness, mutuality, and reciprocity. This is what Sharon mentioned earlier, right? You're in a time of need, and you're a time where you need to lean on people who you know love you and have your back and can lift you up and strengthen you. That's healthy interdependence, right? And there's a reciprocity, so it's not just me needing you or just you needing me, but we're able to have some kind of back and forth. And sometimes, you know, we're in a giving mode where we can be generous and help other people, and sometimes we're in a receiving mode where we need help from other people, but it is, it is reciprocity. It's a healthy back and forth. And this is what we see at the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. The apostle Paul says, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. So Paul's basically saying, hey, listen, Thessalonica, you're doing great. You are living in this healthy interdependence. You're helping each other. You're building each other up, right? You're encouraging each other. And this each other is this back and forth, this mutuality, this reciprocity. And it's a very healthy relationship. You wanna read about a codependent church, read 1 Corinthians, you're like, oh, this place is a disaster, right? But then you read 1 Thessalonians, you're thinking, this, this, this group really knows what they're doing. They've got a healthy relationship where they're, they're um, confident enough in who they are that they're not um, sort of codependent in a dysfunctional way, but they really understand what it's like to be confident and yet have this interdependence uh, on each other, creating a true community. So place yourself somewhere on this spectrum, independent, codependent, or interdependent. Where might you put yourself in this spectrum? And as you do, if you lean a little bit more independent as I do, maybe we can think this morning about taking a little bit of a risk and being a little vulnerable towards, in, towards uh, uh, interdependence. If you lean more towards codependent and you are maybe overly um, you know, intertwining your life by your core identity in the life or circumstances of others beyond your control, then maybe we need to move towards healthy interdependence. So where are you? Where are you in that? Healthy interdependence is the goal for our lives, for our families, uh, in our faith as well. And this is the relational dimension that God has called us to. Now, as I mentioned before, I tend to be more of an independent soul, and this might be uh, some genetics. I just might be wired like that. I am the firstborn child, so that tends to be a firstborn child kind of a thing. Could be environmental, being the firstborn child of an alcoholic. I'm telling you, I am the absolute poster child for that. Um, if there was a poster of a firstborn child of an alcoholic, it is Scott David Treadway, and I just do it all, right? I'm an expert at this thing. And a lot of that is a fierce independence. And the way this works, for those of you who might not have been you know, raised in these kinds of situations, is, is the home life becomes so tumultuous that you build up relational walls because you just don't want to keep exposing yourself to hurt or disappointment or the words, you know, or worse, that kind of come your direction. And so you build up these emotional walls, which creates this very independent sort of a person. And, and that independence then starts being refocused into some other things where we're in control. So the family life is out of control. I'm gonna build a wall there to protect myself, but then I'm gonna control my life fiercely going forward. So to me, it was all about performance. And so I wanted to be the best at school and I put myself you know, fully to school. 
Uh, got myself wrapped up in church, which is where I had all these great people, you know, pouring great influence in my life. So I was going to be the best at church. And so I was there every time, and I was, Bill wants me to study, I'm going to study. Brad wants me to do devotions, I'm going to do devotions. Monty wants me to show up for some leadership thing, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be the best at all this stuff, right? And then I'm going to start a business when I'm 17 years old. And then when we get married, we're going to start building houses, and we're just going to start doing all this stuff. And, and, and people around you kind of think, oh, wow, you're doing so much. I don't know how you do it all. And that was, that's a fuel for somebody who's fiercely independent. It's like, the more you can compliment me for my performance, the more I'm going to really feel good about my independence and who I am. But inside, there's a total dysfunction, a total dysfunction. So as a young adult, I got myself involved in all kinds of stuff, right? Then I got married to somebody who may fall more into the um, overly dependent category, right? And so she's the poster child, and she's sitting right there, and I got permission. Whew. I didn't last service, so I had to apologize to her and say, that was not on the internet, so that we're going to be okay. Um, but somebody who, who may be, you know, on the more dependent side as a classic middle child, right, who seeks peace and maybe the approval of others. And so an overly dependent marries a maybe, or, or independent marries an overly dependent. And so we got together and initially it was fine because we had our roles, kind of well-defined roles. And we moved along and it was great. Then we had kids and it all fell apart. Because a fiercely independent streak does not work when you're a dad. A fiercely independent streak does not work when you're married and are parenting together. It doesn't work at all. So my wife got into her identity as a mother, and I still had my identity as this independent achiever. And month after month after month passed, and I wasn't doing any better. I wasn't making adjustments as a dad. I was still kind of addicted to all this stuff and work and production and keep saying yes to everything that I thought was good, everything that affirmed me I was pursuing, and I was not there as a husband and not there as a dad. And so when my oldest was two and my uh, twins were uh, infants, I just understood I've got to repent. I don't use that word a lot, but for me, I had to turn from this nastiness. It was not working. I was losing my wife and I was not connecting with my kids. I just didn't have the well to draw from. And so I had to walk a journey, a very complicated journey of reading and studying and talking to therapists and figuring things out. How do I sort of take these walls down that were my protection growing up and learn how to really connect relationally with my wife and connect relationally with my kids? And then a little bit later on, as I became the senior pastor here, uh, this is about 10 years ago, maybe a little more, 12, gosh, I'm getting old, yeah, maybe 12, 14 years ago, our board here, uh, God bless them, uh, they were giving me my review, which they do every year, and the vice president of the board said, hey, uh, Scott, um, do you have any friends? And I'm like, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> review my performance, you know? <laughs> do you have any friends? And I thought, well, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I've got a ton of acquaintances, like thousands of acquaintances. But I'm not sure I have deep friends. And I felt like a first grader going to school. Go make some friends. <laughs> okay, I'll go make some friends. And we actually worked a plan. As crazy as it sounds and as humiliating as it is for me to tell you this, our board at this church said, you need to go make some friends. We're going to help you. So here's maybe we're going to resource you with some time to go build some relationships and get involved in this thing and that thing and that thing. And over the period of years, I developed some really solid friends because my upbringing created some walls. I'll just be honest with you, being a 
a lead pastor kind of creates some walls and some self-protection. So I took some risk, some vulnerability, and made some friends. I got pockets of people that I would consider to be very good friends, and we have walked through some gnarly stuff together. So those friendships have been tested. And I've lived in the pleasure of that. I'm not done with this journey. I need to keep walking this journey towards healthy interdependence, but it has been fun. We see in the book of Ecclesiastes these pearls of wisdom coming from somebody who was an achiever. And this author learned the value of friendship, the value of interdependence. And he says this, two are better than one. Two have a good return on their labor. Two can help the other up in times of need. Two can keep each other warm and safe. Two can defend themselves and each other. And then he says, you wanna get really good? You wanna have a really strong life? How about three? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And he's borrowing from a uh, kind of a, you know, a textile um, background. This is 3,000 years ago. So weaving yarn together, right? Three strands of yarn together are strong. Those of you who might be skiers or use zipline or whatever, if you've been on steel cables, it's not one steel cable, it is hundreds, maybe thousands of little cables intertwined and, and surrounding each other, right? Spiraling together, that is real strength. That's the illustration here. You wanna be a strong person? Get your life healthily intertwined and interdependent with the lives of others. And for those of you who are fiercely independent like I was and still am to a degree, taking the risks and, and saying, I'm going to make some friends. I'm going to connect. I'm gonna be vulnerable. I'm gonna tell somebody something that I've, I may have not told a lot of people and see what happens. I'm gonna test this relationship and the depth of this relationship. And I'm telling you the flip side of that, as risky as it can be, and the reality is, is the people around us are not perfect, so you might be disappointed at some point, but that journey going forward is gonna make you strong. It's gonna make us strong together. Going from an independent walk to a, a walk of relationship. Going from just an independent faith to an interdependent faith in relationship with people around us. It really is a fun journey. And Jesus modeled this journey as well. So we're not just pulling from experience, we're not just pulling from psychology, we're pulling from the life and teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus himself modeled humble interdependence. Jesus modeled humble interdependence. We see this in the great hymn of the early church in Philippians chapter two. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took a humble position. So here is Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God, the full expression of God, the word of God who humbled himself. He gave up divine privilege to be humble among us, to live an interdependent life. The one through whom the Father created the cosmos, all the heavens and the earth, the one through whom the Father created us, took a position of humility. And then he created a community of humility and a community of relationship. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, famously, Jesus says, join me if you carry heavy burdens. I'm humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says this is gonna be a community of humility, it's gonna be a community of gentleness, it's gonna be a community where we're bearing each other's burdens. Bearing each other's burdens. And we might think to, to ourselves that, you know, well, these are burdens that Jesus carries for us or we carry for each other. We'll see here in a bit that they're burdens that we even carry for Jesus. Jesus himself carried burdens and Jesus himself needed help around him. He called a community to walk with him 
And so I think for you know, a lot of us, we might think totally understandably that Jesus is the exalted one and we're his followers. And I want us to kind of reframe that a little bit. I want us to rethink this a little bit by the words of Jesus. Jesus himself gathered a community of friends. Friends. Jesus says in John 15, I'm not your master. Instead, you are my friends since I have told you everything. Jesus says we're partners. So I'd like us to, to think of a faith not in terms of Jesus the exalted and we are the followers. Jesus is the master and we're, we are the servants. Let's take the words of Jesus seriously. Jesus says, do not call me master. Call me friend. He says, I told you everything. So we're not only friends, but we're partners. It's as though Jesus took a place of humility as our equal. And I know that's hard for us to get our heads around because he is the perfect and he is the Lord and, and all that is true. But as Jesus humbles himself and as Jesus creates a, a humble community of friends, let's embrace that relationship. Let's no longer call Jesus master. Let's understand that he is friend and we are friends with each other walking this journey together. That whole idea populates our mission statement, and we've had this mission statement for about a dozen years. For some of you, it just kind of rolls off the tongue, hopefully. Uh, we're a diverse community of friends advancing the cause of Christ through mercy, justice, and love. That community of friends, that idea that this is not just about an independent relationship with God, it's not just a personal relationship with God, it's a relational relationship with God. And the character of that relationship is friendship. Something that's very difficult for us to understand is that Jesus himself needed a supportive community. Jesus himself needed a supportive community. And this tweaks our minds, I think, because of course we think Jesus is the Lord and Jesus has it all together. He's the creator, right? The almighty God needed a supportive community. Here we have Jesus at the last supper, right? And he's, he's facing his own fears. He's facing arrest. He's facing unjust trials. He's facing torment. He's facing the cross. And he's struggling. And what did he do? He took Peter, James, and John with him to pray and became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told him, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. There's no other way to look at this. He needed support. And he had the humility to admit that he needed support. I mean, you can imagine, as the very nature of God, he can say, I got this, I'm God, God nailed it. I, I don't need anything, but he did. Taking the place of humility, taking the place of humanity, takes the place of relationship and says, I need you. He brought his best friends together. Pete, James, and John, stay with me, pray with me, bear this burden with me. I am deeply distressed, I am deeply troubled. And if we have trouble getting our heads around how Jesus, as full divinity and full humanity, needs support, let's take a step back and to say, okay, well, what is the nature of, of the Godhead? The nature of the Godhead is Father, Son, Spirit. One God in the mystery of Father, Son, Spirit. And so we can say that God is interdependent. The very nature of God is interdependent. Father, Son, Spirit, inseparable, eternally inseparable. So inseparable, they are one. God is one Father, Son, Spirit. There's a great mystery about that, right? So God himself is interdependent. And since we are made in his image, we too are called to be interdependent. So this is just the nature of being made in the image of God. We too are interdependent. 
And so for those of us with an independent streak, it takes a little bit of humility to say, you know what? Um, I do need other people. I might be successful or look successful, but I'm not really thriving because my family's not exactly firing on all cylinders and, and, and we need some help together. Or I don't have friendships that are profound. I've got a lot of acquaintances, but very few, if any, friends. So to be able to admit that, then walk a journey forward and take the risks. For those of you who might lean more toward the codependent side, you have lost maybe a sense of your own confidence and you might need a journey to say, hey, listen, don't have your identity completely wrapped in another person's choices that are so far beyond your control. That puts you under someone else, so walk a journey of confidence towards that goal of interdependent relationship. And I think this idea of an interdependent relationship is most fully expressed around the Lord's Supper. We celebrate communion uh, the last Sunday of every month. And so as you walked in, hopefully you got a communion cup. If you haven't, wave your arms frantically and we will throw one at you. High-tech cups, there is the uh, juice at the top and bread at the bottom and uh, really fancy Nancy. But this is a symbol. This is a symbol of relationship. Because this Lord's Supper, some call it communion, that Jesus said, share as often as you meet, share this meal together. And so take the bread, and when Jesus was gathered with his group of friends, the night before he was arrested, tormented and crucified, he gathered his friends around a meal together. And they shared their stories and they shared their life and they shared their mission together. And Jesus quiets the room and he pulls some bread from the meal and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Scripture says in John chapter 13 that Jesus was about to show the full expression of love, love to the very end. And he says, I'm gonna love you to the very end. I'm gonna love you until my last breath. My body will be broken for you. As the sin and the evil of the world crush the light of heaven, my body will be broken for you. So take it and eat it in remembrance of him. Then Jesus took the wine of the Passover meal and he says, this is gonna be a symbol. This is a symbol of my blood which is to be shed for you. I'm gonna sacrifice myself for you so that you would know the love of God, that you would know the forgiveness of God. And when you take this, remember me, remember my sacrifice, remember my love, remember that you're forgiven. Remember I gave my all for you. Take this and drink in remembrance of him. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have made us in your image, created for relationship, created for interdependence, to rely on each other and to be each other's strength. Thank you for the model of Jesus who gave himself for us to show us love and in his final moments to ask others to walk with him and to pray with him and to be there for him and to support him in his time of need. So we're a community that follows Jesus together. We thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness we find in Christ and for the relationship we find in Christ together. In his name we pray, amen.